Hi, this is Ellie Kushner, and you're listening to Dance Well Podcast. As a dancer, I feel that rich imagery is an integral part of my artistic experience. But if I had to put into words all that passes through my mind while I move, I'm certain I couldn't do it. So to be honest, I often found research on imagery and dance a bit underwhelming. It always seemed too reductive. When I was discussing potential podcast topics with Betsy Coker, this week's guest, I mentioned this reluctance while also saying that an episode about imagery was overdue. I was conflicted, but I knew Betsy would introduce me to new research and give a compelling interview, and she didn't disappoint. Elizabeth, or Betsy Coker, is a dancer, dance maker, scientist, and teacher. She is an assistant arts professor of dance at NYU Tisch School of the Arts and co-artistic director of the Sean Curran Company. Coker received her master's and doctorate degrees in motor learning and control from Teachers College, Columbia University, and holds a BA in psychology, concentration in dance from Columbia University. Prior to initiating her academic career, she trained at the Washington Ballet and Ballet National de Cuba. Coker's areas of research include postural control, motion capture technologies, and motor imagery in dancers. Her work has appeared in a variety of media, including scientific journals, field publications, documentary, film, and radio. Additionally, she has taught, created, and set choreography with students and professionals across the country, as well as at the Royal Winnipeg Ballet, Opera Theatre of St. Louis, Opera de Montreal, San Diego Opera, Opera Lafayette, Great Lakes Chamber Music Festival, and Yale Repertory Theatre. She directs the NYU Tisch Dance Summer High School Program, a four-week contemporary dance program and composition program for inspired young dance artists. All right. Are you ready to learn about imagery? Buckle your seatbelts. On this episode, nutrition, life coach, dance and performance, psychological and today you are in for treat. Hi. Hello. This is Ellie Kushner. And this is Marissa Schaefer from Dancewell Podcast. Dancewell Podcast. Hi, Betsy. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm so happy to chat. Great. Um, we're going to be talking about imagery, and we're going to spend most of the conversation talking about motor imagery, um, as that's your area of expertise. But could you give us, to start with, a short overview of the broader field of imagery, what all is included, and what are we leaving out if we talk mostly about motor imagery? Right, sure. So we can think of mental practice as being the sort of overarching umbrella that motor imagery is underneath. Um, And in terms of like sports psychology, which was one of the first fields to really very clearly delineate what we now consider to be this like lab area of research called motor imagery, um, they talked first about visualization. And so maybe, you know, if you have more of an athletic background, that sounds more familiar to you. Um, and that can describe a whole bunch of things. And some of the outcomes of those sort of visualizations, particularly if we think about athletics, could be things like goal attainment. So like a runner might imagine themselves crossing the finish line after successfully completing a race. Um, creative imaginative expression. So, you know, all the ways that we can think about imagining ourselves move in a creative way. Um, And then motor imagery, which is what um, is my area that I'll be talking more about. And motor imagery, we define as the discrete practice and sometimes repetitive practice 
of imagining yourself moving without moving. And so the without moving part is part of the classical definition of motor imagery that's changing. We can talk about that a little bit. Um, but it's pretty important from the neurological underpinning. So again, imagining yourself moving, but without moving. All right. That seems pretty straightforward. <laughs> and yet, um, could become very nuanced and subtle and have many slight variations, I'm sure. Um, do you want to give us an example of what we're talking about? And maybe we can refer back to that example. Um, could you talk us through a little bit of a brief motor imaging dance experience? Sure. So I want to start by giving examples of how dancers have probably most come across imagery in their own dance practice. And then maybe I can give some examples from um, the lab science, which of course generally doesn't exactly mirror what our you know field experiences. So most common examples in dance training um, that sort of already exist in the traditional pedagogy, I found they generally describe a body alignment or shape goals. So something like stacking the body vertically, imagine line dropping down through the crown of the head. And I think that's something if you've studied at least like Western dance styles, that's something probably you've heard. Um, another one that's a common favorite among small children is when you hold your arms in first position, you imagine that you're holding a beach ball. So again, that image gives you some idea of uh, shape or body alignment. Um, another one is when you're doing a demi plie in first position, imagine that your legs should make a diamond shape. Um, then there's also, of course, like qualitative movement cueing that involves all sorts of imagery. So, for example, imagine that you're pressing your air through, uh, sorry, pressing your arms through air that's really thick. Or when you tondu your foot out, imagine that you're drawing a line in wet sand. And so these are directives that might give you some insight into how the teacher wants you to perform qualitatively. Great. So shape and quality. And then you also mentioned the lab science. So you're a PhD. Uh, you've <laughs> spent time in the lab. <laughs> tell us some, tell us a bit about that. So many hours in the lab. Um, <laughs> so an example of a, a task, so I gave this example of the demi-plie. Uh, some of the work that I've done was looking at really foundational uh, Western technical dance tasks, so one being a demi-plie in first position. And um, I was looking at alignment from a, well, first of all, I was working with expert dancers, so it's a different population than perhaps you would tell to hold a beach ball. Maybe not, but um, so I was looking at repetitive and discrete motor imaging to improve alignment specifically of the pelvis relationship to the thigh. So you think about external rotation, we want to maximize external hip rotation, but without affecting um, the neutrality of the pelvis, just to be sort of general. So I was working with students and professionals, pre-professionals and professionals who already had probably a good sense of what that meant for their body. And we're trying to get them to, you know, recreate this ability every time to, you know, decrease the variance in their performance. So a cue for that might be, and we'll talk about modality because that was another factor in this, but a cue for that might be, so I want you to close your eyes and imagine yourself doing 
10 demi-plies in first position. And when you do that, I want you to focus on how your thighs are rotating outward and your pelvis is staying level as it moves up and down. So this is a very, a much more specific, um, repeatable sort of cue that is indicative of what a lab scientist might use. Great. And you mentioned modality. Do you want to speak more to that now or later? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's there's a sort of longstanding debate or conflict over um, the terminology that's used in motor imagery. And I, I think that maybe we're in a, in a place of more agreement now. But essentially, we talk about motor imagery. We talk about perspective and modality. Um, and they're easy to confuse, and they do often get confused. Um, and so perspective has to do with first person or third person, so the perspective from which you are imagining yourself move. Modality has to do with the senses that we're recreating when we do this sort of mental rehearsal of the movement. So the two that I'm interested in looking at are visual and kinesthetic. Um, and now, of course, there's interactions between these. So from the visual modality, you could create an image of yourself doing a movement from the first person. So you are imagining that you're inside your body and you're seeing what you would see if you were doing the movement. For dancers, it's maybe a little bit weirder than for athletes because we tend to train in really um, spare environments where there's not a that, although that's changing now that we're all dancing in our living rooms. Um, and so, or you could imagine yourself, uh, you could see yourself using the visual perspective from the third person. So that's a bit more common where you would, it's almost like watching yourself on a film. Um, kinesthetic modality has to do with feeling how it feels when you move. So recreating that felt sensation of moving. Mm-hmm. What other, so there's, those are a couple important terms. Are there other key terms that we need to know as we move forward into this conversation or any um, vocabulary that we should acquaint ourselves with now? Yeah, I think it's good to just remind yourself that so there's mental practice and underneath of that umbrella, there's motor imagery. Um, they can be sometimes used interchangeably and they, they shouldn't, I think, just to be clear. Of course, if there's mental practice, there's physical practice. And we'll talk about some of the ways that motor imagery um, may affect physical practice. So, so mental practice, motor imagery, we talked about perspective, modality. And then finally, static versus dynamic. And this is a new um, sort of classification of terminology that I particularly like because it was a bit mucky for a while. Um, so static being the that describes the sort of classic motor imagery experience where you're not moving your body, but you're imagining that you're moving your body. Dynamic motor imagery expresses something that is actually perhaps more like what dancers do in class and rehearsal, which is that they're performing motor imagery while moving, mm-hmm. at the, sometimes called concurrent motor imagery. The literature looking at dynamic motor imagery is really interesting, um, and it's really it's pretty complex and it's pretty unclear. Um, but it is, of course, I think the most potentially generalizable to what we actually tend to do in the studio. That's so interesting to me because when Betsy and I were um, exchanging ideas about this this episode, I said we really should talk about imagery. But I sometimes find imagery very frustrating because I feel like it's a really important part of my 
lived in experience as a dancer and I don't usually see the depth of that experience reflected in the research and I'm often frustrated the research often seems to really like dramatically oversimplify the concept of imagery and so that right there what you said is is gets at my issue because it really is for me imagery is like yeah, happening while I move, between moves. It's the whole integration of those sensory systems. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think on the other side, studying concurrent or dynamic motor imagery is really difficult. Um, It provides some of these like research-based, like methodological conflicts Mm -hmm. that, that and it's sort of the perfect storm. It's like, so you have a group of people who are doing concurrent, concurrent in imagery and movement, and then you want to look at what the effects on, you know, their eventual performance are. And you can't separate the two, so you can't separate what's attributable to their thought process and what's attributable to their physical process that they're doing them at the same time. And there, I mean, there are ways around that, and there are some imaging techniques that have been used. Um, but we'll talk even later about some of these, you know, of course, I think there are some ways that the more discrete, repetitive, sort of lab-based methods can and are starting to be used in the studio. Um, yes. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to that. Um, is there any? Are there any dominant theories you've sort of introduced already? Um, this this paradigm, but are there other theories that we should be aware of? Yeah, I think the one that's really um, useful to think about and one that I introduce to my students when I'm teaching this um, is this idea of action continuum. So we we tend to maybe colloquially, I think as dancers, we we don't actually really deeply think this way, but colloquially, colloquially, we tend to think of movement as being something that we can see, an observable action. And the action continuum idea is that action occurs across a whole um, process, starting with intention. And so intent, the intent to act is part of action. Of course, the preparation, the neural preparation organization, taking into account what you know about the task parameters and goals and the environment and what your anticipated outcome might be and then bridging into what we might think of as overt movement. So that in which the body is actually displaced in space and that this whole continuum is in itself action. Uh, and the way that that, res- that is related to motor imagery is through the, some of the, really, the mental neurophysiological research that was done that was postulated about how motor imagery is related to the neural process of movement itself. And um, Mark Jean-Rowe in the mid-90s, so I know to me that doesn't, that seems like not that long ago maybe to some of the listeners, it's (laughs) perhaps before they were born, but um, this is a fairly new field, I have to remind myself. Um, So Jean-Rowe's idea of motor simulation was working off a lot of imaging research that was strongly suggested, and now we have just more and more of this evidence piling up that the neural process that is underlying motor imagery is very, very, very similar to the neural process that is underlying movement itself. And so if you think about, you know, I think before this idea came about, people were thinking about motor imagery or they were, you know, 
usually would call it like mental rehearsal as a memory, a solely memory-based experience. So it's like you're recalling a memory of having done a movement and you sort of play that video in your head um, and that's that. And then that process is neurally and functionally really different from what we know happens in the brain when we're preparing to move and when we actually move. And so John Rowe really turned that around with this idea of if you think of the action continuum and you look at the, at the neurophysiological evidence, that mo- motor imagery is the entire process of simulating the movement up into the point of overt action. So there's this really um, equiv- like equivalent functional experience that happens between the two, which I think hints at, and we'll talk about some evidence for the effects of motor learning, this, that, that you know, motor imagery is like a really powerful process. Yeah, I mean, that really speaks to... Um the value of motor imagery in terms of skill building, especially, you know, this episode will live on, but right now we're all in quarantine, most of us around the world. So it seems particularly relevant to remind everyone that actually imaging things can be almost as effective as doing them. Is that right? It is. I mean, I think we can talk about evidence, um, there is now, you know, I was studying this when I was in graduate school, so 10 years ago, um, and there's just, you know, what we were starting to find then has been, there are new avenues opening up, but it has really been sort of reinforced by what, by the continual um, gathering of evidence in the area. And, you know, the big caveat or the big sort of poster when I was in school studying this is still true, which is that mental practice when performed with physical practice seems to result in better motor performance than either of the two alone. So we would say MP plus PP equals better than either alone. (laughs) Um, And there's a lot of different ways that you can do that. So it doesn't necessarily mean that every motor imagery um, experience has to be dynamic, like concurrent with movement. Um, But it does seem that as an adjunctive practice, it's really best. Um, yeah, it can really have some strong effects on your eventual motor performance. And we we can talk about this more in a moment, but also a caveat is probably that not all practice is equal, right? And that's true for physical practice and imaging that, you know, somebody can practice 10,000 hours poorly or 10,000 hours well, and you see different outcomes. Right. And I think it's, it's really great to remind ourselves of what, how we program movements and like what that whole process is. I think if we think about motor programming from the perspective of we always start with an intention. We're talking about voluntary goal-related movement. Um, so the intention being, what am I doing? What's the goal? And then that leads to a selection of a motor program. So how am I going to do it? And what do I expect to happen? So, for example, you know, perhaps we're cued in class to do um, a sequence of turns, and so I say my action intention is that I'm going to do this, this pirouette on door. And then the selection of motor program is, well, how am I going to do it? That's based on probably my previous experience in, in attempting to do this. And what do I expect to happen, which is really important. So the, the selecting of a motor program, this, this expectation of what we, ha- what we think will happen, that is really, really important to the whole process of motor learning and skill acquisition. 
So I'm going to choose a motor program based on best fit. So probably also based on how I've performed in the past. Like what was my best um, trial of doing this before? How did I, how was I most successful? I'm going to try to recreate that. And then I enact this movement sequence. And at the end of that process, I have a set of errors that come up. Um, and knowing me dependent on the direction I'm turning, so the errors are going to be much higher on one side than the other. Um, and it's the process of evaluating that error that is really is the bedrock of motor learning. So basically that question of after I finish moving, evaluating like did what I wanted to happen, what I thought was going to happen, did it happen or not? And this happens um, explicitly, of course, like, well, okay, I did two turns and I finished cleanly. So that's some information. But it, most importantly, it happens implicitly. So there's all of these sensory experiences that come up when we perform movement and they get encoded into the representation for that movement. And so when we call up that representation again, when we call up that program again, we have this set of sensory expectations. And then once we perform it, you know, a third or a fourth or a fifth or 10,000th time, it's the richness and the, the sort of um, real like nutritional value of that learning experience is how well you're able to account for whether the experience turned out like you thought it would or not. Um, the interesting thing about pure static motor imagery is that it's a feedbackless state. So you're not moving your body and you enact this action program up to the point of um, the muscles moving. And there's some conflict in there research-wise, which I would love to talk about. <laughs> um, but, that, but you're not actually moving your body, and so you're not getting to the point of evaluating the movement error. Mm. The interesting thing about that is that, you know, that in one way it points towards motor imaging being potentially not as powerful as we might think, it is not, you cannot learn to dance without moving your body. I can tell you that much for sure. Um, so one of these really important components of motor learning is missing. On the other hand, dynamic motor imagery, where you're imaging and moving at the same time, poses some attentional challenges. So mm -hmm. am I supposed to be attending to what I'm doing in real time? Or am I supposed to also, you know, are these, it's not quite clear actually if these are two sort of, um, related processes that are happening at the same time. We know that we have uh, only so much attention that can be allotted. Um, but it does seem there's other ways to organize these adjunctive practice sessions. Like, for example, you can practice motor imagery in blocks. So you could practice static motor imagery, and then you can do the movement several times. And then you can go back and forth between these blocks, and that, that actually builds up you get both a physical um, sensate experience and errors, something to correct. And then you also are depositing within that this really rich cognitive state. Okay, there's a lot here. Um, <laughs> I think, I mean, one, th one thing, just a riffing an idea, when you talk about this as an implicit learning process, I have to say something that I have just observed in my teaching of expert and non-expert dancers throughout the years is I think that that, that learning, that motor learning process is so 
critical and sometimes overlooked. You know, I mean, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of different things to make a good dancer. And I don't think there's a, a set recipe. You know, some people are not so good at this and very good at that. And um, that's all fine. But a lot of times I experience that expert dancers, that implicit learning and explicit learning of I made a plan. How did it go? What do I need to change? Do I want to repeat it? Do I want to try something different? Do I want to try it again, but just do it more? Do I want to, you know, those processes are, I think, so essential in good dance. And, and in my experience as an educator, I feel like they can sort of be taught to some degree. Um, so I don't know if you have anything to say about that or if we can just leave that sitting there. No, I think it's a really great observation. And I think that in some ways, you know, teaching expert dancers, like being a teacher of experts or a pre-professional, um, I, I do, I hesitate to say this, but I, <laughs> I do think that this, you know, we talk a lot about like repetition and like, well, just doing it and just doing it again. And that really minimizes what's actually happening it's a sort of like, oh, rote learning, which is just totally not what's going on. Um, I, I do agree that there are times in teaching the more experienced populations where it does seem as the teacher's role to be, well, just to tell them what they need to do because they, they just need to know what, you know, just tell them the corrections so that they understand. But there's a very big difference between understanding and between embodied understanding. And and all of the motor learning research that we have in every domain points towards repetition and math practice as being the way to acquire that embodied learning. Yeah, like you said, there's no way to learn to dance but to dance, right? It's a right. point. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like like performing not perfect movements before they're perfect. Yep. It's, it's in the errors that the learning happens, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think, I mean, if I could say one more thing about this idea of feedback and motor imagery, um, and this could get us into an area that I'm really excited about, um, and I think is probably very cogent to a lot of the listeners, it's that there are some times in which it could be good and actually preferable to have feedbackless practice. So, for example, we know that traumatic and chronic injury can induce pain and, you know, fear of pain loops. And that actually this pain and the fear of pain can become encoded within the cognitive representation of the movement. Yeah. So if you think about, for example, shin splints, um, so if it always hurts when you jump, then your representation of the motor program for jump is going to include pain and perhaps the fear of pain um, if you have a sort of avoidant behavior towards jumping because you have shin splints, which is probably a really adaptive behavior to have. Um, and so the, the expected sensory consequence of doing that movement now includes pain. Um, so this is an example of a population or, you know, kind of um, subpopulation in which it would be really, really great if they could practice the movement without feedback until such a point that they can practice it with feedback that doesn't include pain. Um, so static motor imagery has been used in quite a few research situations, none particularly in, in traumatic dance injuries that I'm aware of, but there's a lot of evidence to show 
some really great benefits of motor imagery in um, injured populations. And, you know, there's all sorts of outcomes of that. So, of course, if you're injured and, and especially if you have, you know, forced disuse, so if you're splinted or you have a cast or something, um, or, you know, in a dance population, you're told not to move. But, of course, we know that's generally not very <laughs> effective. <laughs> that you can practice motor imagery to um, all sorts of ends. And, you know, one of, of course, the sort of more rehabilitative science way of looking at that is that we have evidence showing that motor imagery can increase eventual uh, muscle, muscular strength and endurance. There's some thoughts that it can improve sequence, so sequencing and multi-joint coordination after injury. Um, but the one that I'm really very interested in is this idea of, of rewriting the sort of program for the movement, particularly in experienced expert professional dancers who've done these movements many, many, many times, um, really like undercutting that pain and fear process through imaging. Let's let's get into that programming process because um, I feel like we, we can't we need a little more information before we go further. This is a lot to ask, but could you sort of talk us through um, from a neuroscience perspective how imagery works? Like, what's the map uh, of of this process of imagery? Sure. So if I I want to start again if we think about the action continuum. So I'm going to start with a really um, broad perspective, sort of neural map of the process of creating voluntary skeletal muscular movement. So we know that it starts with this idea of intention. So we have premotor and supplementary motor areas that are active. Um, Supplementary motor having a lot to do with the sort of coordination of the expected sensory consequences and also the environment that we're in. Um, The cerebellum, of course, is quite active as a site of coordination, timing, and postural control and balance. Um, And then there's some interesting activity that I, this is a total aside, and I'll get into it later, but some very specific parietal areas. And then this process uh, sort of comes to what I always think of as this gate, you know, the, the, the gate once passed at which skeletal movement happens, um, which is primary motor area, or M1. And so when there's activation in the primary motor cortex, this is going to be um, transferred as a cascade sort of down the corticospinal tract, so the tract that's connecting the the cortex to um, the peripheral skeletal muscle. And of course, once peripheral skeletal muscle is accessed, then we have muscular contraction, we have uh, limbs being displaced in space. That's not the end of the motor program because once we move, we know that we are collecting the sensory consequences of that movement. So we have all sorts of organs that are responsible for reflecting how the movement felt um, and also, you know, what was happening visually, auditorially, proprioceptively, somatosensorily. And then that's then transpond back up to the somatosensory um, cortex and is you know, sort of divvied up for evaluation in a very broad and complex way. So we think about that as being like the sort of whole motor loop. We have evidence that shows that that um, simulation that happens during motor imagery is actually involving all of those same areas. And the really interesting 
thing that was sort of in conflict when I was starting to look into this, and now there's apparently some more uh, supportive evidence for this, was that people, you know, once we accepted motor simulation theory, looking at the imaging outcomes and seeing that motor imagery in the absence of classic static motor imagery, in the absence of, of overt movement, involved premotor areas, supplementary motor areas, the cerebellum, these specific parietal areas, and also some activation in the primary motor cortex. So people were like totally into it until it got to primary motor and they were like, what? <laughs> but, they're, but they're not moving, right? They're, that was a bit confounding. And there were a couple of theories that were floated. One was that um, in fMRI, you can tell if an area is active in the cortex, but you can't, from these studies, um, distinguish whether it was excitatory or inhibitory action. And of course, if you tell somebody not to move, then there, there's going to be a whole lot of inhibitory activity happening in primary, primary motor cortex. So the question is like, is this inhibition or suppression of movement? Because I've been told to imagine moving without moving. Um, and actually, the, the sort of next round of research that was looking at that tested down the chain. So it was looking at corticospinal excitability, which would be an indication that as I said, like the gate had been, you know, sort of opened. And it's been found now pretty repeatedly that static motor imagery does result in corticospinal excitability. And so this points to the possibility that motor imagery can act as priming. So it's sort of priming or facilitating the muscular pathways, um, which again, it's like, that's really exciting because that is something that we can we can use and would seem to be underlying all of these really beneficial effects. And how would we use that? I mean, like when you say that, I've been teaching a lot of Pilates mat work right now in quarantine. And that's kind of a big part of what we're doing, right? Is sort of like picture it, get it organized and then do the movement. Yeah, that is Pilates is a really good example of, um, blocking this motor imagery physical practice, motor imagery physical practice, that sort of is blocking. Um, and, you know, in some ways it's like you're priming these neural pathways for better practice, for more efficient practice. And also like potentially just beefing up if you, you know, if you don't have, you know, I don't know, it's, it's, there's a, question of time of practice and there's a question of math like how many repetitions you're doing but if you really want your repetition repetitions to matter I would say that this is probably a good way of doing it right to kind of maximize how much you do in each little repetition right yeah fill it full of vitamins um how else do we use imagery what other what else do we know about how imagery is being used um in dance populations or or similar athletes. Right. So again, um, in athletics, this is fairly well um, explained, and it's also a big part of the sort of culture of athletics. And, you know, now increasingly there's research in dance performance. The overarching umbrella of mental practice is, is this, like, major cornerstone of the sports psychology. Um, we know that by practicing a sort of mental rehearsal of movement that we have an increased perception of preparedness. It can increase confidence. 
tends to decrease performance-related anxiety. And so just, I mean, I'm just talking about motor imagery, but I don't want to minimize all of the other sort of really broad um, spectral possibilities of practice. Motor imagery specifically, we have evidence that it can facilitate sequence learning and sequence retention. So this is really important in dance. Um, As in like choreography sequences. Yeah, for sure. Or even in class. Macro and micro. Yeah, for sure. I mean, my when I think about motor imagery, dynamic mo- an example of dynamic motor imagery in the dance studio that's facilitating sequence learning, I always think about marking petit allegro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like the sequence, you don't have time in a really fast petit allegro to do the sort of like online processing of the sequence. And you will find the point at which you, you know, you hit a break point of how fast you can move and think at the same time if you're not prepared. Um, And, you know, marking is like a really good example of something that's really embedded in traditional dance pedagogy, but is this, um, you know, it really is dynamic motor imagery in action. Um, There's evidence that motor imagery improves multi-joint coordination, which is probably very similar, similarly used in the dance classroom. Um, And like everything we've talked about, this facilitative effect on motor learning Again, perhaps best when it's used adjunctively with physical practice. Um, specifically, so there's research showing that dynamic movement, pra- so motor imagery can be fatiguing. It's definitely not this like unlimited resource. It requires um, attention, it requires some uh, effort. But in the absence of physical, peripheral physical fatigue, dynamic motor imagery seems really effective. Static motor imagery, again, we talked about a little bit about injury. But, you know, when your body is fatigued or you're injured or you're restricted in some way, static motor imagery seems to be really effective. And it's, it seems that um, the ability to use imagery improves with practice. Is that um, evidenced in research? Yes. Yeah. So this is something that, you know, I work with really high level, um, experienced pre-professional dance students. And I always feel like I have to sort of remind them that like maybe they're far away from their early dance training experience when they weren't that great at everything. <laughs> and I feel like I ha- it's really good practice to remind them that like, if you feel that you're not good at something right now, it's not because like you're a bad dancer, which I think tends to be, they're like, well, I'm just not good at that thing. It's it's just that you haven't practiced it enough. Like that's really the only way to get better at pretty much everything. Um, And that's true for imagery too. So there are, it does seem like there are individual differences in imagery ability. There's differences according to age that do sort of map out to our general uh, motor ability across the age spectrum. And interestingly, there's research showing that imagery ability differs between athletes and non-athletes when they're imagining an athletic skill. So this is very clearly showing that the athletic experience has contributed to, you know, increased effect of the ability to image. Mm-hmm. Um, like the better you are at the skill, the better you can image it. Right. Yeah. Um, the more clearly you can. Of course, this is all self-report, which itself is interesting, but it's also, so within an athletic population, those athletes who reported higher physical confidence, and this is, I think, in this particular study, it was related to injury status. So those who felt sort of physically healthy and confident in their physical ability reported clearer images, hmm. and that those who were, were injured 
perceived more difficulty in imaging. So there's also this interesting sort of confound of confidence. Confidence always creeping in there. Um, (laughs) I know what you mean. I know exactly what you mean in terms of reminding students that everything is practiced. Um, I, for a while, when my child was smaller, I would say, you know, you didn't used to know how to use a fork. Like now you just think you were born with that ability, but you weren't, you practiced it really, really hard until you got better at it. Um, how else do you apply your knowledge as a researcher and this depth of information that you have about imagery to your teaching practice? So you're a faculty member at NYU Tisch um, and you teach both studio classes and, and academic classes. So what are some of the applications of your research experience to your teaching practice? Well, one of them is, you know, I teach both Uh, what we think of as like more traditional studio technique classes, contemporary practice. uh, And I also teach movement science. Um, So it works both ways. I I find that, of course, in the studio, I'm encouraging students to practice sort of discrete motor imagery of generally of sequences. So again, really giving them time to think and move and think and move in this sort of blocked way. Um, Again, like you say, they give the example of Pilates, like sort of getting everything online and ready to work. Um, I think that's really important. It also has a lot to do with how we teach certain sequences of movement. So you can teach it and I can show it, but also the way that you can use sequenced language and that, you know, because to, to in, as a teacher to incite a student to use motor imagery, I really have to think about how I'm cueing that. And so using the language of teaching a sequence of movements as an embedded experience of what I want them to imagine. And I think that this, you know, it's something about, there's a lot of uh, conflict in, in the sort of like lab-based and then creative-based practices, but this is like not one of them. I think it's it's really exciting to me that the dance, you know, traditional dance pedagogy actually has all of these places where we can insert and um, sort of blossom out of what's already there for this evidence-based lab practice. Um, it's not always true. <laughs> I think there's like a really great example of that kind of um, synthesis. Linking, yeah. Um, could you give us an example of that? Like what kind of cues you use um, in terms of sequencing to inspire or encourage motor imagery? Yeah, for sure. So you know, there's, well, I can, there's lots of different ways that I imagine I'm going to use this really concrete example. So if I'm talking about how to do a sequence of movements, and I have, as was also assuming, let's say I'm using music, and I have counts that are assigned to it, I can do the movement and count at the same time. And, you know, I can only say one thing at the same time. So I can, I can, I can count, I can do the movement, and I can say the names of the steps as I'm doing them. I could do the movement and I could use words in place of the name of the step. Mm, slide could instead of time. Qualities or alignment I want. Um, right, exactly. And of course this depends on the on the population, the level of expertise. So if I'm working with students who, if I'm doing like a releve arabesque, they know it's a releve arabesque by seeing it. They don't need me to say that. 
that's actually, you know, saying the name of the step while doing it is a really good teaching technique for students who are trying to learn the vocabulary. But if I have students, they know the difference between an or in music, they know what the relevant arabesque is and what it looks like. So if I can say, like, buoyant ankle, buoyant ankle, and I can clarify or, you know, what that means, um, then already they're, I'm giving them the sort of reduced, really like a strong nugget of information that they can apply qualitatively while they're thinking of it and while they're doing it. That's great. And let's just, let's finish up reflecting on the research Again, you've sort of hinted at some limitations in the research and some developments in the research. Is there anything else you want to mention in terms of like where there are some limitations or gaps or um, emerging new ideas? Sure. So there is, you know, in terms of limitations, or rather I like your framing of it, gaps, um, <laughs> There has been this question batted around for a while, and I was doing some research looking at this, um, thinking about whether there might be some relationship between the modality or the perspective of imagery that a person who's imaging chooses and the type of task that they're imaging. Um, And this came about, I did a a series of studies looking at, um, you know, sort of foundational ballet tasks and the subjects were using different modalities of imagery. So, you know, one group were imagining the felt sensation of doing the task, so kinesthetic imagery modality, and the other were using the sort of third person visual. So they're imagining seeing themselves do the task, like almost like on a film. Um, And this was really great and seems like a clean sort of methodology or clean paradigm But the issue with imaging is that we don't know if they're doing what we tell them to do. (laughs) And we can ask them. And so the first round of this, I didn't ask them what they did. And that was sort of a mess. Um, You know, we had these conflicting results. And the second round of this, I, you know, gave, you know, half the group this one modality cue and the other half this other modality cue. And then I asked them at the end, well, what did you experience? And they were pre-professional dance students. And regardless of what I had cued them to do, the majority of them reported experiencing mixed or layered images. So I could tell them to watch themselves on a screen, but it's almost as if, you know, the vast majority of the subjects in the study reported that their images almost seemed to like occur to them, that they just sort of had this life of their own. And they were imagining themselves doing these movements, but they were For example, you know, they started by feeling it and then they sort of switched to a visual perspective and then they switched to like a first person visual perspective and that they were always sort of moving in and out of all of these modalities and perspectives. And I thought like that was really, really interesting. Um, We started looking into this and there's some other groups doing this, suggesting that maybe there is actually an optimal sort of match between the modality or perspective that you use and the task or the task goals that you're trying to enact. Um, it was an interesting uh, evidence that so expert gymnasts were found in a study to choose the first-person visual perspective, so out of their looking out their own eyes, when they were imaging tasks that involved gripping bars, which makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but then for tasks that involved inversion, so like somersaults or cartwheels, they switched overwhelmingly to a kinesthetic or a, a somatosensory modality. Um, 
So I think like that, you know, would be, I mean, very interesting on a sort of foundational neurologic uh, frame, but also really useful, could be very, very useful for teaching and for, and for rehabilitation as well. That's interesting. And we, you, we do so much open chain work and dance. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that we tend to use that sort of third person and, but maybe something like partnering or certain types of floor work would benefit from that internal first person perspective. I like, I mean, the uh, potential effect of mirrors that our visual dancing is, is really, um, our sense of self is sort of developed through that existence of the mirror from such a young age. Yeah. There's a couple other agile, you know, future areas of research that are really interesting. Um, one is this, this is so work by um, Mosley, who's done a bunch of work in like pain and, and fear of pain. And he and, and his colleagues were looking at what he calls impossible anatomies. And so basically they were working with a group of amputees who had experienced the loss of a hand at a wrist joint. And through mental motor imagery, like really repetitive, pretty long-term intense motor imagery, they trained this group to imagine that their wrist joint, which has, you know, a certain number of degrees of freedom, but is certainly not unfettered, um, that they could, they imagined that the wrist could actually rotate 360 degrees. Mm. And that some of the people in the study reported a really robust sort of rewriting of their perception of their wrist ability. And I just think that, like, there's something very interesting about this idea of the, like, rewritable body. And I don't know, you know, of course, if with an amputee, if you don't have that limb or limb portion to give you sensory feedback, but is possible that maybe this is a sort of opens up different possibilities. But it's interesting to me to think about the tradition of somatic-based improvisation in dance and like anatomical fictions and, and how often we can think about creatively think about our body as it exists, like beyond this physical reality, the effect that that might have on artistic practice. Um, so I think that's really interesting. And then if you'll humor me one more, I, will. <laughs> I warned you that I just love talking about imagery. Um, so brain, there's a whole you know, area of research now on uh, brain computer interfaces and particularly using motor imagery as a sort of mediator of brain-computer interfaces. So brain-computer interfaces describing this process of, you know, an individual who lacks peripheral movement capability, um, that they can direct computer signals through systematic thought, broad. And then this specific use of motor imagery um, through EEG signaling so arising from active motor imagery, and you use that to interact with a variety of systems and eventually to affect movement through wheelchairs or neuroprostheses. Um, and I think sort of we're at a place in the dance world and dance pedagogy and dance performance where we really need to start thinking more um, broadly and more complexly about what the body is. And so when I think about this idea of motor imagery, something that we all do regardless of what our overt physical expression is, I just like think about 
how exciting the implications could be about how we think about the body, how we extend cog cognitive motor process to include devices. You know, it's like the who gets to move and what is movement, but then more importantly for us, who gets to dance and like really what is what is dance? Is there a time sometime and I hope the near future when we're running auditions for, you know, these BFA dance programs and that we might have really um, radically different physical expressions of bodies in front of us. And then how do we adapt curriculum to reflect that reality? That would be great. Is there anything else you want to share in, in concluding? And also, um, do you want to give your contact info in case people want to follow up with you? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I don't know. We talked about a lot. I think the rehabilitative um, potential is already, you know, imagery is already being used Some, in the same ways that we think in dance pedagogical practice is sort of used traditionally. I know that, that clinical practitioners are using imagery and have used imagery. Um, so I'm really excited to follow that, and particularly in, in dance populations where performance and, you know, high-level performance is so important. But then also all of these, like, talked about the confounding factors of confidence and injury and pain and fear. Um, and, you know, imagery is something that we can do now in any environment. We can do it in our home, um, no matter how small they are. And it's free, um, so I, you know, it poses all sorts of multi-factual mm -hmm. benefits. Yeah. Um, and otherwise I, yeah, I'm Betsy Coker, BetsyCoker.com. <laughs> <laughs> we'll include that in the show notes and also on our website. Um, Betsy, it's been an absolute pleasure. As I suspected, you have completely converted me, um, in terms of taking an interest in the research on imagery. So I'm not surprised, but I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful to do that. Um, no one needs to be converted. Just follow the evidence. On behalf of Marissa and myself, I, Ellie Kushner, want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dance Wall Podcast. Our intro soundscape was composed by the dynamic duo Brendan Berry and Dylan Ezzy, and dancer-designer Katie Dean crafted our visual image. To those of you who have made this season possible by contributing to DanceWell, we are infinitely grateful. We wouldn't be where we are without you. Your donations help pay for our SoundCloud membership, website fees and upgrades, and our recording technology. If you too would like to make a donation, to dance well, please follow the link in the description of this podcast to visit our GoFundMe page. We thank you in advance for your support. And lastly, if you like what you hear, we invite you to go to iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and search Dancewell Podcast to subscribe. You can also view all of our episodes and learn more about this podcast by visiting our website, www.dancewellpodcast.com. And if you have any questions or want to get in touch, email us at dancewellpodcast at gmail.com. Bye.